I think the best way I can describe it is like the way Lionel Richie talks about people build him as like a pop and R&B star, but he doesn't believe in the idea of genre. He writes music. That's the way I'm thinking about it. I'm, I want to do, do the writing and I want to do it well. And whichever way it takes me, I'm going to walk fully into it and embrace the fear of it. It may not be fantastic, but it'll be something that I was deliberate and intentional about. Because it's just like, it's more liberating that way. Welcome to the Underground Comedy Podcast with Sean Joyce. For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com. Hey, what's up? Thanks for checking us out. If you're in the D.C. area this weekend, Carmen Lynch will be headlining Big Hunt. Carmen has been performing with us for years. You may have seen her on Comedy Central, Conan, or The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. The following week, we'll be having a special New Year's Eve show at 8 o'clock at Big Hunt. You can get tickets and info to all these shows on the website. Our guest today is Russ Green. Russ is a good friend of mine and one of the first comics I met in D.C. when we first started almost nine years ago. Since then, Russ has written for multiple publications, including BET, and has been a fixture on underground comedy shows and in the scene in general. June 2011? Yeah, 11 or 12, something like that. I can't remember. I can't it's remember hard, the yeah, math anymore. So, It'll be nine years for me in March. But I met you before that class. Yeah, we were just out miking. At RFD, I met you. Yeah, yeah. Your entire family was there. <laughs> I think you had a table full of like 12 people. Oh, right, because my cousins were there. Yeah, You yeah, were wearing yeah. a full suit. I came from work. You were passing out business cards. Like you do. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you were, uh, how long had you been doing stand-up at that point? I started in March 2011, and that was when? It, I mean, it had to be between March and June, so... So within months? Yeah, you were probably... We were probably both... I started in February, so we were both like a month or two in. And yeah, so yeah, you... <laughs> I was wearing, you know, probably a button-down flannel shirt and jeans. And the same pair of sneakers you've had since... Yeah, and then you were wearing... <laughs> and you were wearing a full suit and passing out business cards. And my dad's ties. Because, of course, my suit was too big and my ties you were tied too big. tied too long. <laughs> Long tie. I remember the long tie also. That was that was before I started seeing a stylist. You you uh, go to a stylist now? I go once every couple of years. Or the stylist helps you with your clothes. Yeah, with the overall look. Like she'll be like she'll put like four or five looks together. So what's this one that we have right now? This is just casual dad mode. Oh, dad mode. Okay. Yeah, it's dad mode. All right. I'll see the kids a couple hours after this. I'm just. You know. Did. did you come up with this yourself, or did she come up with the dad look? This No, dad is an organic. Like <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I'm in chill mode. I know I might get grimy. All right, I got to hang out with the kids this weekend. What should I wear? <laughs> hoodie. And she tells you. Jeans. Put sweats, on sweatpants. Sneakers. Yeah. Or in the winter, it's like boots, hoodie, sneakers, jeans. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. the same thing every time. Consistent. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's no getting, point in changing There's no it. reason for like a button down and slacks for the kids. No. Unless you're going to church or some shit. But, but I don't go to church, so. So when you started stand-up, it seemed like you had a very business-like attitude immediately. I think my attitude overall was business because I was, like, trying to condition myself to be a true, like, professional and employee because I was, like, starting a family and I knew I needed to have, like, responsibility. Had you just had your first kid around then? I was, a, let's see, I had two kids then. Okay, so you, yeah. you were already... I was well into being a dad. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember you ever existing without... <laughs> In my life, you know, without, without, <laughs> I don't remember a, a Russ with no kids. That's fair. And that's, you know what, frankly, there's a, something I read that said, 
people's uh, perspective of you is based like you're gonna have their different you based on who knows you right you're different to every single yeah, person yeah that's right and so that's fair I mean if we met at that time that's all I was really about and that's why single Russ is very freaky to me <laughs> listen if another person comes to me with their like fear and anxiety about like what do you call it unsettling yeah it's unsettling <laughs> it's very unsettling well imagine how it is for me Sean <laughs> I'm I, I, I can't imagine it must be very strange for you it's uncharted territory. Yeah. I've never lived alone. I've never, I've, I haven't, I haven't dated since college. And how's that going? What? Dating? Uh-huh. It's nice. Yeah, you like it? I do. It's like, you have like no expectations. One of my mantras is no expectations, no disappointments. Okay. And I'm not trying to do anything next. Uh-huh. Like I'm not like framing anything like, oh, this might be the one. Maybe it'll work out. And I'm not like. I'm that forty. I'm not a forty-year-old guy that doesn't have kids and doesn't have like a house and a, like a. Are you running into a lot of women that are looking for serious relationships? No. Is that right? Okay. I'm meeting a lot of women who are thirty-five and mm-hmm. like realizing that they're not going to have a child immediately mm-hmm. and not going to get. They're still not married, and they have their shit set up already. So they have some money. They travel. Uh huh. Or I meet divorcees. Uh huh. Or I meet people who are also in the separated space. But I think a lot of that is like you attract who you are. Okay. So if I was like a wild club rat type of dude, then maybe I'd meet like a bunch of 20-year-olds. Right. But no, I think I'm meeting people like on my level. Yeah, you're not a club rat, really. I was in college. I was. I used to go to the club Wednesday through Sunday. You're in a fraternity, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of stereotypes that go with those type of behaviors, club rats and, uh-huh. and frat boys. And what do you think? Do you think that you, you didn't really fit into those fully? I don't think I fully fit into anything. I, I can, yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine you being a shitty dude. Oh, that's easy for me to know. Yeah? Yeah, because like Issa Rae says on Insecure, like like one of her characters she writes says, you're a fuckboy that thinks you're a nice guy. And oh, I yeah. think that's who I was Okay. for a long time. Because it was like, oh, I'm, I'm, but I'm nice to you. I can't be like the rest of these Oh, kids. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, for sure. I can imagine that. <laughs> Even yeah. though, like, now I don't want to talk to you anymore because we had sex. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's just like. Um, oh, were you doing a lot of that? No, no. I'm the, I, w- I haven't been, like, the ever, like, the loose penis dude. Like, okay. I'm fucking everybody. Uh-huh. That's not me. I value, like, connection. Okay. But I've definitely, like, met somebody, had a one-night stand, realized, like, we didn't have any chemistry. I didn't want to do anything else after that. And been like, you know. That's normal. I'm just never going to talk to you again in life. That's That's not weird. That's very foul, though. Like, if you meet somebody and you pretend like you've never seen them. Oh, if you pretend like you've never seen them, yeah. yeah. Like, you were inside their body. Okay. And then you were just like, oh, you don't exist to me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's, that's yeah, pretty yeah. foul. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I've only did that one time in my life. I never pretended like I didn't know somebody. I could never pretend like I didn't meet them before, but. Well, that's effortless for me because I don't remember anybody's names. Okay. So then when I see them, I, I'm like, but you remember their face. Remind me again, and when I, I mean, you could easily. I mean, it depends on, on how back. much time had <laughs> gone, gone, pat, gone by. It was pretty. Fa- it was like she came to. I was, used to work at Sam Goody, uh-huh. and like that was one of my favorite jobs. Ever. It was like a cool place to work back then. Super cool because this is like still the CD uh-huh. cassette tape era, and like music was my entire life in college. Like, now it's like working at like a record repair shop. That's a cool job. No, that's like what working at Sam Goody's like. <laughs> it's like some antiquated <laughs> profession that like you're like, what? What is it? What do they do? It's like Radio Shack. They employee. sell CDs. <laughs> what? That's cool. Yeah, that was cool. It's like explaining to someone like what a rotary phone is. Right. Exactly. <laughs> My kids are like, so you play music on this? <laughs> <laughs> that's odd. So, you, uh, I'm curious. You had a business like attitude towards stand up. Did you real quick think like that you wanted to do something with stand up or you just you, that's just how you approach everything? 
when I started stand up, I was very angry uh-huh. at like where I was in life. Why were you? What were, what? Because I'd had the whole package. I had a family. I had a family sedan. I had a home. You uh-huh. know what I mean? I had two beautiful children. Like, you know, I was making six figures. Like, I'd achieved everything that I was supposed to achieve. Yeah. And I still wasn't happy. So I was very angry about that. So when I started stand up, I kind of went into it as like, this is my escape. Mm-hmm. Like, this is something for me. And if I get really good at this, then I don't have to do any of this other dumb shit I don't want to Yeah, right. Do. So the main thing was like replace my job income with stand up or comedy money. Mm-hmm. And then that way I can phase other parts of my life that I don't like out. Right. And so that's the ad- that's how I executed on that path. And so that's why it was so like organic for me to start a room, start producing, start doing like, let's do a record, a CD recording one year in with like a... You were know, you able to actually make enough money from doing that stuff that you were replacing part of your income? Not with the way I was approaching it. Yeah, the way I, was I mean, it's hard it was to do like locally. Haphazard. Well, I don't know. I was talking to like Eddie B. And he was like generally like, at that time I was like, Ed, I've been doing this for like six months. Why am I not making six right, figures? And right. he's like, he just busted out laughing in my face. Everybody when they're six months has that attitude because <laughs> you just don't know. You just don't <laughs> understand. Well, I think that if we could frame it like something more realistic, like yeah. like <laughs> jazz musicians, like you're not making a lot of money in that profession. Right. I think a lot of people walk into stand up thinking they're going to be a superstar even comedian. if you're any type of musician you don't start off making any money but that's but that's you gotta point. make it but that's the that's the point i think that we think in a very like scoped closed-minded way about what making it is and like if there's anything that i would have done differently i would have focused on the writing exclusively yeah i mean that's the easiest way to make money i think it's the fastest easiest way to make mm-hmm. money. but it's still very hard it's still really hard to get those jobs i mean you you did get a writing job but for me it's like you have to do the work and enjoy it, like find a way to enjoy it, and then the rest of the stuff will come because people are going to see that you're good at the work, and the mm-hmm. more quality work consistently you produce, the more doors open for you. A lot of what I was doing initially as a stand-up was like, well, I only want to do stand-up, so I was closing doors for myself. Sure. People were like, yo, you should do improv, you really should do common, radio, yeah. you should do podcast, you should do X, Y, Z, and I was like, no, I'm just going to keep doing the stand-up thing that's not making me any money that I have to do every night of the week, multiple times a night to make nothing. You get indoctrinated in stand-up that you shouldn't do anything else, when, like, at first. Well, because like, you're with a lot of losers when you start. You're, like, a lot of people that aren't doing anything else but that. And, like, you've conditioned yourself to believe, like, yeah, this is it, guys. Well, it's just kind of the it's just kind of the early-on attitude that you <laughs> – that you that's just what you walk into. But it's a lot of people that have this, like, NBA dream, like, nonsense. Like, oh, okay, I'm going to play – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, like, one one dribble, like like, one route – I'm going to shoot this yeah. J, and then I'm going to be like Michael Jordan or LeBron James. It's fucking ridiculous. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that just are like, you know, role players. Of course. And they, like, how how many comedians do you think there are in the nation? Um, Tens thousands. of thousands? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how many comedians are, like, top billing, like, wh- on name recognition? Ten? Well... Depends on what, how how much name recognition you mean. Like you can, you they would stop people in the street. Yeah, twenty probably. Twenty, but that's what everybody's vision is. No, no, I know, and it's it's even. I don't even know if you can accomplish it anymore because the way that people became famous like that doesn't even exist. Like, there's a, a couple of people like Kevin Hart that have done it kind of recently that it like became like superstars, but like most of the superstars became famous a while ago back when a lot of people were watching cable and you know everything wasn't so broken up into to different interests 
I don't know. Agree to disagree. I think like like Tiffany Haddish is Tiffany important. Tiffany Haddish, I thought, yeah, that's another one I thought. Even yeah. something on like a smaller scale like Paris is important. Like to go from I'm not doing anything but the mics and now I'm doing JFL. Well, I'm not talking about that. I think that I still think that people can have careers, but I think the careers look different now because people are finding their own audiences versus like well media landscape has changed that's what i'm talking about yeah yeah. that's what i'm saying like those 20 people that are superstars i think it's really hard to become a superstar now like i think it's like there's less of an opportunity for that and i think that's why you see the same actors in movies over and over again you see them make the same movies like just but that's because remakes. everybody's replying to that one industry like the hollywood industry i think people need to talk about like this like opportunity that's so much like more entrepreneurial and independently focused like independently owned people are killing the game can you stop people on the street though of course you, you can when you come up being um, independent so do you know this musician named uh xavier omar or masego or like any i mean i'm not following music currently okay so the point is is like they do little intimate spaces 67 60 70 seaters then they move okay. up to 300 seaters then they move up to like a thousand seaters and something like, I'll never forget, like Tim Miller said to me, he's like, you can be a headlining touring comedian if you can get 150 people to see you, 300 people see you in every city you go to. That's a different way of thinking about it than why am I not famous yet? Like the thing is, like I can use social media to build enough of a following to get 10,000 people to like me. And then those people will see my videos and then wherever I go, I can build a show around. I can guarantee that 300 people are gonna be in your seats Friday, Saturday. Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now you got it. Now you're a headliner. Are you talking about 300 per show? Yeah, sure. Not 300 per weekend. Okay, so let's do a smaller venue then. Let's do 100. You know what I mean? Over well, if you're nights. only selling 100 tickets, you're not going to make that much money. That's why you got to do the writing. Right. right. And then you got to do the radio. And you got to do the podcast. And you got to get your like IG popping. And you got to have a personality. You got to create characters. You got to create and be willing to give more. And I think that's what fucked me up initially. I wasn't like as much willing to give i was very like reticent to share information because i was so worried about propriety yeah i feel that way also i I also have that kind of initial instinct where you know i don't want to like give my jokes away or like my perspective away because you know there's only so many different things i think about and so many different ways i put words together and it's really hard for me to like give that to somebody else but i think that that's an attitude that people who become writers just get over yeah, because it's a fucked up mentality to have. Like this, it's an, it's a mentality of lack versus a mentality of abundance. Yeah, that's right. Like if you're focused on like if I give this away, I have nothing. Versus like, yeah, sure, have it. I can create more. Right. Right. Then you're opening up so many channels. I can't tell you how many people initially were like, if you said the joke like this, and then I'd see them perform, not that joke, but just their material yeah. generally. I'd be like, oh, that's how you perform a joke. Yeah. Right. I'm writing jokes and telling them uh-huh. and expecting the hilarity to ensue. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like if I'd been more willing at that point to just keep putting the pin down and like you know work with people more just on on like a lateral level when you first started i think the one of the things that held you back was that you wanted to write new stuff constantly that's all i've ever wanted you're constantly doing new material yeah you are never sticking with material long enough you do you you stick with material now but in your early years or maybe early year yeah yeah i remember you were just every time you were doing new stuff and it's like you gotta. It was. You know what it was. You gotta it was, let it turn into jokes first. It's like when you first start having sex with like a woman that you really like dig. Uh-huh. That's all you want to do, right? Uh-huh. And you want to try new positions. 
And you're like, okay, let's, let's <laughs> now we'll do it in the morning and in the night. And we'll meet for lunch. You know what I mean? It was that sure. kind of excitement about it. And of course it was good, but like if I was like, let's only do missionary until I get really good at missionary. That's that's the kind of like feeling it had for me. Like yeah. It was just like I would get tired of them. I I do remember you saying that we did like a showcase at the lounge and you were like, yo, did you just write that joke today? Because I had tweeted it that morning. Right. And I was like, fuck yeah, I did. And then it like hit. That's like the greatest feeling ever, yo. It is a great feeling. It's an amazing feeling when you write something new and it works. That's like one of the best feelings. Yes, because it's the the thing that I had to realize later is how much like validation you're seeking when you start. Mm-hmm. Like, I need you to know that I'm funny versus I know that I'm funny. Yeah. It's funny because so you're coming in with like, you're like, I know I'm funny. Yeah. I have stuff I want to say. Yep. I'm excited to say it. Yep. You're coming out. So you're coming out completely pure. Smoking. Yeah. <laughs> and whereas, you know, I'm on the same showcase and I'm like, this is an improv showcase. It's important. You know, I need to do well on the show so that I can get booked again. Yeah. So I'm going to have everything meticulously planned out and I'm going to go step by step through it. Yeah. Um. And, you know, those are just two different approaches. But my approach was the same, but it was more like, I'm going to perform at the DC Improv. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, but like, you're, that's but all you're I care doing about. a brand new joke on an important show, which I would say is a very risky thing to do. But it was important to me for the validation of the audience. Like, your importance was the validation of the bookers, the managers, the people that Oh, are that's make right, yeah. Mm-hmm. We were seeking a different... Yeah, like, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I was viewing it from the club perspective as opposed to the audience perspective. And I was bringing 10, 20 people out at a time. To see yeah. me because that validation was really important to me. Yeah, yeah. Then. You know, now it's like I don't ever want to tell somebody I'm performing. I could see how they would both work. I could see how your attitude would work just from being kind of infectious. Yeah, exactly. You know, you kind of have more exciting sets. You can yeah. end up getting booked often based off of that. Yeah. Whereas, like, I'm getting booked off of just being proficient. Yeah. I think that we both could have met in the middle more. You know what I'm saying? Sure, of course. We're extreme, yeah, extreme versions of the two things. Well, it's like we're the best thing I like about the trans movement is how it breaks down like the idea of the a binary being a construct mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that everything's a spectrum. Yes. So between the trans movement and having like a daughter with autism, you know what I'm saying? Like spectrum is something that has become part of my life now. Right. And so I think at that time I could have like if you look at like the way DJs move the meter, like mm-hmm. left and right when they sw- want to switch records, like what DJ Bo would do. Like I wish I had done more of that. Okay, now I'm going to fuck with the right more. Now I'm going to fuck with the left more. Yeah. Now I'm going to be over here in the middle a little bit. I'm going to fuck with this inside. It would sound better if I did it this way. Like, I was too, like, zoned in. What were you zoned in on? Just, like, I need to prove to everybody how funny that I am uh-huh. so that I can continue to do this more, and then that's all I'll have to do. And what's your attitude now? Now my attitude is there's no reason why if I've made – $200 on a weekend doing stand-up uh-huh. consistently, and I made $5,000 doing one shoot, right, mm-hmm. to do, like, interstitials or something. There's no way, reason that that takes me, um, in the same weekend, the same span of time, that I shouldn't be doing more of that when I have more time to do the writing than I do the stand-up. I can only do the stand-up at night, and I can only do it at so many spots. Mm-hmm. I can write from sun-up to sundown if I want to, and I can send that everywhere in the world. And I can create, I can produce, and I can shoot a video for it in my home with my fucking phone in my pocket. Mm-hmm. That's such a dumb way to like, like it's just so limited to think that I, I only focus it on one way. And I can work with so many more people. When you're on yeah. social media, suddenly that following becomes more than just you putting it out to an audience. Is those people are feeding back into you as well. They're like, yo, 
this other dude is a comedian. Right. And then if you're less like reticent to share, you wouldn't be so, and you're not focused on that lack mentality. You're more willing to reach out and be like, yo, let's work together. Yeah. You're also just starting. You're in Vancouver. I, I would love to go to Vancouver. You know what I'm saying? You're just, you're so like, oh, I got to get the clubs to like me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's yeah, so that's dumb. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It is a limit. It's a limited perspective. It's so dumb. And then like, it was, it occurred very early to me, like how segregated comedy was. I knew entertainment was segregated, but I, when I started comedy, I was an idealist. So I was like, oh, I know Eddie Murphy probably meets Eddie every night with you know, like Richard Pryor. <laughs> and then sure. he go kick it all day long, you know what I'm saying? It was the same way when I started with comedy. I was like, oh, Tony Woods lives in town. That means Chappelle's probably around the corner, you know what I'm saying? And Eddie Bryant's here. He knows everybody across like the eastern seaboard. This is going to be great. And then like you realize like how bitter and mean-spirited folks are and like like how like just if someone gets an opportunity, they think that's the only opportunity that exists. Mm-hmm. Or like um you know, I I always approached it in a very genuine way when I started, and so I was like happy to meet people and happy to like build like co- collaboration and build a network, and so like people would be more like they saw that that was the energy I was vibing with, so I'd attract more of those people, and so they would give me better advice. Like Shep, she was like, "You're brand new. That means you can do whatever you want for as long as you want." I'm five years in. I can't do whatever I want anymore because people are expecting me to be yeah. funny. That's right? true. Yeah. She's like, go hard in this time. Do whatever you want. And that's such a beautiful thing to learn when you're starting. Right? Like, I wish that, like, like even, like, what you do is when people notice you, they notice that perspective of you. So they're like, I used to always get an audience when I perform in front of a black audience, like, that audience would always not laugh, but be fixated. Okay. They'd be, like, focused on every word I was saying. Okay. And I would get off and they'd say things like, that was very clever. Or you're really smart. Ooh. And I was like, oh, yeah, but I'm trying to be funny, though. Yeah, and I would weird. take that same jokes to like a white audience and they'd be laughing their asses off. But I really didn't want, I didn't need their validation because, you know, me and white people, I don't, uh-huh. I don't think. <laughs> you're, you can't tell, you're not the barometer for what success is. Uh-huh. You're the barometer for like what, what's capital producing. You know what I'm saying? I'm focused on like I want the heart of what I'm doing to have some authenticity to it. And I want you to feel something when I say it. So why do you think you're getting those two different reactions? Because I feel like it was affirming for something that we already knew culturally. So it was like I would get the church grunt, like a mm-hmm. Oh, right. Versus a ha-ha! You know what I'm saying? Yeah, It wasn't yeah, revelatory yes. to them. Yeah, right, exactly. It's like, yo, this brother just like tied in, like why? Like at the time I was doing this bit about like um, MLK was the first like gay rights leader. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so it was, to me, I was like, that shit is brilliant. Yo, where did these motherfuckers hear this? And they was crushing, you know, like white audiences and then black audiences were like, mm-hmm. But I don't like that you called MLK gay. But oh, I'm sorry, that's not what I said. Or then I would like meet my like black lesbian friends and I was like, they'd, they'd be like, I don't like how you talk about black people, like black gay culture. Mm. Right? But that was a clever angle. And for me, that's like my community. You know what I mean? My community is like, it's of import to me. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, oh, okay, I get it. See, I thought you were saying at first, I mean, one of the things that happens at Big Hunt is because people are really into the news and issues and stuff, they pay really close attention to it. And certain comics that come through who they're mo- mostly making points, yeah. you know, as yeah, opposed yeah. to like telling jokes, you know, they might be saying really smart stuff, but it's like the audience is like, right, yes, mm-hmm. we know this. It's out, and, and I thought that's what you were, you were saying, but it sounds like it's also maybe you were getting into some sensitive topics that was a problem for them to hear. Of course, hear. that's all, that's what I, that's my wheelhouse is sensitive yeah. topics. That's like how I was reared as a child. 
the the truth that no one talks about. So has that? Do you get a different reaction from black audiences now? Yeah, the audience this because it's just like the that audience is expecting a performance, and I'm still in that space of like, oh, I'm just here to tell jokes. <laughs> okay. And I feel like when it, that's what I've learned to do is to get to really polish that stone until it's smooth. Do you right? think that you think that having that more performance um, in your set is allowing you to talk about those difficult topics yeah fuck yeah it's like it's like when you okay when we send kids to school especially um like uh, public schools Mm -hmm. they're learning in the same way kids learned in the 1800s you sit down and you sit down for x amount of time and then after i you know do this like wrote lesson eighty thousand times you're going to be smart because you're going to be able to put the regurgitate this on a test Uh uh-huh that's an awful way to learn anything. There's multiple different ways people learn things now. Mm-hmm. And that's the same way that I would approach like anything else that I'm doing You know, this way. It's like with, with the black audience, it's like we have always been the barometer. We have always been the ones at the like cutting edge of art. We've defined what art is. We've created that from nothing. Like this is, hello, welcome to jazz. Welcome to rock. Welcome to soul. Welcome mm-hmm. to da 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 Like, oh, now we're going to do an arts movement where everybody's talented. Everybody can do all this kind of stuff. And if you can't, blow the house away the first second I, when you hit that first note i don't even need you on my show because this the, this audience is expecting that mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying versus like um you know you do like when you if you listen to jazz like you listen to like what jazz is on an elevator versus like jazz is at like blues alley right you're like oh this is no wonder the fuck that <laughs> this sounds better you know right. what i'm saying it's it's the same way with stand-up audiences you know what i'm saying like a black audience is like well you're not kevin hart you know what I'm saying? You're not Tiffany Haddish. You're not not what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you're not funny. Well, it's funny because I don't think a lot of people even think Kevin Hart and Tiffany Haddish are the funniest comedians. It's not about the funniest. It's what frames what, like, right. I think that's what limits a lot of people. That's what I really realized about, like, um, even when I was in Cabo Verde, like, um, my homegirl does out there singing. They wanted her to sing Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. And that's like a flagrant foul in, in DC, like in America, American culture, like, no one gets to sing Whitney Houston anymore because no one can sing like Whitney Houston. Therefore, don't even try it. That's, that's out of bounds. Same thing with Luther Vandross is out of bounds. Okay. And so it's like when you hear somebody new that sounds like any artist from before, they're all, like they put you in a box. Mm-hmm. So like when like Estelle came out, they were like, oh, she sounds like Lauren Hill. Fuck, now she's got this like glass ceiling that she's not going to be able to reach. She's gonna, not going to be able to get to that. She's not going to be able to grow. Yeah, she's a lesser Lauren Hill. Yeah, it's like, that's fucked up. Just let me be. Can right. I be in my own individual space and fl- and like flower out? Like I was getting a lot when I started out. It was like, oh, you sound like Dick Gregory. Or you sound like, <laughs> um, who's the other dude? Uh, I can't remember his name. Fuck, uh, Franklin Ajay. Okay. That's what that's like. Every vet was saying the same thing to me. And I was like, why? You know, just kind of like this loose. Did you listen to Dick Gregory? Uh, when I listened to Dick Gregory, it was because of my parents' influence. Therefore, right. it was like Dick I was going to say, it's the pr- civil rights dad. Leader. Yeah. It was never like Dick Gregory, the comedian. Yeah. It's Dick Gregory that like comes to the Smithsonian to or sits in a, a high school like um, gymnasium with chairs set up right. to deliver a three-hour lecture. I, right. That's just from growing up with your dad, don't you think? Yeah. My mom and dad, you know, were both like very much militant. So right. it's like, we want you to hear the truth about what like w- what the world really is. Mm-hmm. I wish I could have understood Dick Gregory was funny. You know what I'm saying? Right. But Dick Gregory was just like militant. You know what I'm saying? So what do you think now? Do you feel like uh, I feel like a lot of stuff that you talk about and learn about throughout your life has become more mainstream over the past, you know, three, three to five years. Well, look at what happened to the culture in the past three to five years. Like. I think you and somebody else anticipated said that I anticipated like what was going to happen with the election. 
and like why like because i was talking about this shit before like the whole like white people are the devil like white mm-hmm. supremacy is very much as this like status quo normative and everybody's trying to act like it doesn't exist yeah i don't think that i mean to me predicting the election is not is not what it what it is yeah yeah but no just the but, reality but of how talking terrible, about yeah. the existence of white supremacy yeah that is predictive to me because it sounded kind of crazy five years ago to say like <laughs> this is white supremacy and it's like white supremacy dude there are n- like what are you talking about and now now i do see we had this we've had this conversation several times which yeah. i really enjoy because you're like i have this this philosophy that it's a responsibility of every white person to save a black person's life and every black person to save white white person's soul you know what I'm saying? Okay. So like a, a white person would be like see you and be like, okay, this person's gonna be like in a home and have a great career now uh-huh. because you just need what's limited to you is the access. Right. Versus me, it's like what's limited to you is the your humanity. Like yeah. what you're not <laughs> seeing is that people are being destroyed for no reason just because of their skin color. And you're acting like that's okay because you don't know any black people because your whole community has been cookie carved out for you so that black people can't even live in that neighborhood and don't have loans to get mm-hmm. access to those homes and and get like heavily policed and intimidated when they make a wrong turn and mm-hmm. then shot to death in the fucking street like an animal dog i think the thing that was i mean all of that stuff was like one piece at a time became obvious to me you know like yeah, yeah it yeah. was just it was like well i mean that you know i know these things are bad from the past <laughs> right. i mean a lot of it you think like yeah right well you know it used to be like everything used to be so racist and fucked up and this yeah. is just kind of like left over but like i mean with the current government you're watching people and you're like whoa they're actively implementing it they're like re-implementing lots of it and it's intentional and it's all it is racist yeah well and also i had the benefit of like the bt experience so um there were a couple of like efforts that i was i was like asked to work on that really enlightened me like working on domestic violence and intimate partner violence and working on like um like doing the women's movement or the women's march like the week after doing the election or the, i think the same weekend of doing the election yeah right yeah so it's like oh wait it was an inauguration inauguration i'm sorry yeah so it's like oh wait a second like the patriarchy is way worse than white supremacy <laughs> oh really you think so oh, women aren't even people because the products that they need to be a natural person they're upcharging for them you know what i mean right. like or like, oh, no one tells me what to do with my body whatsoever. Yeah, but like if they, I, <laughs> they pay a completely different set of prices for everything. Yes, all of the items they buy are are priced differently. Or, you can't wear that. <laughs> you know what I'm sure. <laughs> because that makes me think about fucking you. Yeah. And you wouldn't have gotten fucked if you did not wear that. Like that's such a fucked up way to be, yo. Like I like my like. The idea of like. Just having a daughter, right, mm-hmm. was scary as fuck. And having a black daughter was terrifying. You know what I mean? And it was a beautiful, wonderful thing to have, like, my first child. Um, and I was very close-minded. I always thought I was going to have a boy. But something that all parents realize, like, when you have a child, when you hold your baby in, in your, like, like lap in their arms mm-hmm. for the first time, you're like, oh, I could murder. Like, I, I would kill somebody if somebody did anything oh, yeah. to you. Oh, I already knew that. And then, like, the world, and you, you figure out the world and how terrible the world is to women mm-hmm. and the terrible things you've done to women and t- in pursuit of women because they're objects to you. They're not people, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so it, it forced me to turn more inward instead of outward and complaining about the black struggle. Like, what happens to black girls 
Like mm-hmm. the fact that like I was having this conversation like with two, with three black women in the airport. We were stuck in the airport for like twelve hours, and they're like, uh, "We're talking about Ta-Nehisi's new book." Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm saying the Water Dancer and like how beautiful it is that he makes a fictionalized narrative about the Underground Railroad and all this kind of stuff. And uh, she's like, "Yeah, I just can't get why white people don't understand like you know their connection to all these atrocities." And I was like, "Well, people don't like to be proven wrong because they feel it emotionally, and that like hurt people don't want to be hurt ever. That's not what people want to experience." But I was like, it's not just white people disconnect themselves to the atrocities. You know, we have done it too. Because it's not just white people's forebears. Like, those white forebears are the uncles and, and, you know, who raped, you know, our mothers and aunties back in the day. Mm -hmm. They just decided that while on the same plantation, their white child would live in the house and have a beautiful life. And their mixed child, their black child, that was was a byproduct of rape. Or that one night he he just finally got to have her. You know what I'm saying? Mm Mm-hmm is just in the field mm-hmm. but treated just a little bit it gets a little bit extra cornbread or some shit that's that's what's still our our forebears those are still people that are of our lineage they also did something terrible it wasn't just something we, we intended you know what i'm saying it wasn't like us like come like have me that's a reality and there's just like when you realize like as a you know we should we deal with domestic violence and partner violence the majority of black women die and are destroyed by people they love mm-hmm. which are largely black women black men because black women are extremely loyal to black men when it comes to like, you know, amorous affairs, relational affairs. And then when you're able to see that, you're like, damn, we're fucked up too. How can I be fucked up? I thought it was just them. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. So like the to go full circle back, it's like I stopped being less concerned about white supremacy because it people had been exposed to the reality of it. And I started being much more concerned about the reality of patriarchy and mm-hmm. like violence against women because of what I had learned mm-hmm. about the reality of the world and of myself. You know what I'm saying? So it was like well, this is much. This is a much more interesting thread to pull on now. Yeah, that's why I like what stuff like that, um, Paris does, or Carrie Cottett does, what Glow was doing when we first started working with Glow, um, what like Pearl does when she talks about masturbating. Sure. Right. Like, to this day, it makes audiences uncomfortable. It is. But any it dude is, it, can. I, <laughs> I'm still not used to seeing it, and I've seen Pearl talk about it. You know, dozens of times. I've seen her do that material and it it still is like a little it's still new it still feels kind of different how dare this woman with women parts talk about these things it just you just don't see it it's just not common well it's like if if men can't derive pleasure from it then it's it's not important that's what's like that's the root of it that's the whole center of it like if it was like oh i like when my man uses a toy on me i think they'd be inclined to listen it's it's no different for me for my sex robot joke so it's like Hey guys, there's so many more oh, yeah, toys. Leave it. It's like uh, disempowering <laughs> the man. Exactly. The whole thing about patriarchy is it centers male at all times. Mm-hmm. White white supremacy is the same thing. It centers the white, you know, um, comfort at all times. Mm-hmm. So now we've shifted, and women are like being more um, deliberate about where they want to feel empowered and what they have the license and liberty to do. Mm-hmm. And people are like, no, that's mm, that's what is this a feminist? You know, <laughs> this is a feminist rant. I don't want to hear this bullshit. I can't even laugh at the. 27th dick job. Yeah. <laughs> but it does and now it's starting to feel like really repetitive hearing dudes talk about porn over and over again. Just now though. But we're like how long has come since come since vaudeville? So now we're talking about like oh <laughs> that's fucking yeah. weird. that's so sad, dog. That as a culture we're just there. That's so sad to me. Like for me, what's exciting about what you do, right? 
is that you've worked as an independent you know producer mm-hmm. to build a premier space for comedy mm-hmm. and you want to put the premier performers in that space mm-hmm. and I, and for me it's like okay then if you're still focused on stand up which is like a like a avant-garde like a st- like challenges the status quo mm-hmm. then you need to challenge it in a very deliberate way so, i don't know i don't know why we're not there i don't i i you know i i've been talking to you for like the past few years about getting back into it but this year has been so tumultuous for me like oh getting back <laughs> into producing shows yeah i want i just I see so many like things that people are not taking advantage of, just opportunities to like create that people are like Well, it's tough once you open once you open up the possibilities to all the different things you can do, right? Yeah. Whether it's gonna be podcasts, writing, making videos. Yeah. You know, you can't do all of it. Like you can't you have to like pick and choose what you're gonna spend your time on and like whether you're gonna do like a monthly show and you're going to do a monthly podcast and you're going to do two videos a year, you know, or are you going to like focus on one of them? You know, so I think you, you got to like make decisions about how you're going to spend your time. I think that's your truth and I respect your truth, but just like we were talking about before, you have to be willing to share and work with people. You can do all things if you're willing to extend yourself and like create more blessings like and watch those blessings like grow and expound naturally, like, and build themselves exponentially to greater things. Like, I may not be able to do a monthly show. I may not be able to host it every month, more so. Mm-hmm. But I can certainly sit in the background and work with a team of people and be like, okay, this is your month to host. You figure out who the comics are in the lineup. You know, I've already got the space and the, like, the work, the relationship with the, the owner of the restaurant, the proprietor. You know, all you got to do is just put the show together. And mm-hmm. I need to be able to trust you to do that so I can work on this podcast that I'm doing that's way more important to me. And I've already, like, booked all the people for that that weekend that we're going to be doing these shows. Right. right? That's a different way of thinking about it. But then I can still right, wake up every day and do, like, when a homegirl said, she does something called My Morning Pages. She just wakes up, puts a pen and paper, and writes three pages out mm-hmm. every single day. You do that every single day, you've written a significant, you put it, produced a significant amount of work. And yeah. that took you an hour, Maybe. Right, so it's like um, one of my things is like challenging constructs overall. Time is a construct, you know what I'm saying? Money's a construct, gender's a construct, you know what I'm saying? All this kind of stuff. So if you think about it that way, like, okay, I can put an hour together a day to write, and I can put an hour together a day to work on my podcast. I can put an hour together a day to work on a video. That's why I love people like Amini, because he operates that way. He mm-hmm. proves all that bullshit that people say is wrong, because he's been doing it. He's doing all the things people say you don't have enough time to do. Now, it may be physically destroying him. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I think he's holding up pretty well. But he also works with a phenomenal team of people, right? Like, he's just like, I'm not just doing this by myself. People want me to succeed. People are, like, it was just so brilliant to be able to, like, I'm not just doing this in D.C. anymore. I'm doing it in New York and L.A. And I know I can get it done. And I know I can work in the biggest venues. Because mm-hmm. I've been consistently producing quality shows. So he got that thing right, and he was doing that since he was at Silver City. Yeah, and I would say that he did most of it by himself. In the capacity that he had the vision, and he was willing to execute it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, he does a lot of work by himself. I mean, he does, you know, he shoots the video, he edits the video, he decides to put them up, he, you know. The, he does have people work for him, but it's not like nobody else is making those videos for him, and nobody else is, you know, he, he's running the show, man. Yeah, but he also does like behind the scenes work with a lot of people. Like him and DJ Bo have a very strong relationship. He builds a lot of collaborations with people to do the podcast. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, it's um, Nunez. Like is very like geeked on doing like edio- video editing production. You know what I'm saying? Like sure. 
if so- something as simple as like the goofy shit that like um foodie would do with Madi, you know what i'm saying so foodie and Madi and and, and uh foodie Madi and the dude from minnesota who twitty twitty they would just do goofy like off-brand like off-kilter shows yeah right that's fucking brilliant that absurd shit is a whole lane that should have continued Right, and it didn't take a lot of things to do that, but those three people decided to collaborate together. And if they had done that consistently, yeah, I'm kind of I'm a little bummed out that we didn't, um, you know, preserve more absurd stuff because I feel like a lot of the a lot of that stuff kind of got pushed to the side. Why though? I think because I, just think I think there was a lot quickly. of focus on the live shows, and I think the live shows did better with conventional material. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think there's a lot of people. I think comedians overall get bored quickly, because we're creators. Mm-hmm. Like I like much more now than ever. I'm focused on building myself as an artist and a creative than anything else, because it's boundless that way. I'm not in a box. You can't define what I do. Mm-hmm. You're you're amazed when I do something different every time. Oh, you also have done sketches? Yeah, yeah, of course. You know what I'm saying? Oh, you've been on multiple podcasts and people want you to do your own? Of course, right? Like mm-hmm. because I opened myself up to this creative space where where like I'm just in a sandbox. I can build a fort, I can build a moat, I can build a castle, I can build a treehouse, I can do all things in this space. It's open to me. You've been doing sketches lately? No, I'm, t- I'm talking about the sketches I did before. I've been putting together sketch ideas. Like, um, there's a sister I really like here, um, Mia. She's probably, like, one of the most brilliant people I've ever worked with. And she's, like, the Taraji P. Henson of DC on the low, right? Like, she's so fucking, like good at what she does and she's so fucking talented but just nobody knows like where she is or what she's doing because they're not she's not on some premiere stage every night mm-hmm. you know what i mean and i think that's like that's more important to me now is to work with and collaborate with people like that who are also very exceptional in what they do and with their ideas about where they want to go and and to be very deliberate about exposing myself to that type of energy more you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that makes a big difference. Yeah, and like I got a sister now that like works on a podcast and she's like, I think I got this idea for us to do a podcast together. You know, let's start writing it out. How do you think it would work this way? Just that and the other. Like that's that gets me way more geeked than like, oh, you got a book this weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you kind of move on. You move on to like, you know, different interests and more varied interests. Also, I just think it's something as simple as like what you talk about. Like you want to consistently do something well. Mm-hmm. For me, it was like, this is just not being done well the way it's like every now and then it crushes, but it's not consistently like fire. And like whenever I write, that was not the case. Like people would share it. People want to ask people for more of it. People would be like, can I can I give it to this person? I got this email last week from a high school student about a piece I wrote on Corinne Gaines. That was a sister from Baltimore who was shot to death with a child in her, like three-year-old child in her lap. Um, she was like, I want to do an interview with you because I'm talking about um, the reality of the criminal justice system and you know what happens to people of color black women and people of color and i was like yo my heart burst open dog i was like wow this is fucking incredible dog this is something i did in 2016 yeah nobody remembers the comedy i was doing in 2016 but that piece of work that i put out its life is like you know it's unlimited dog do you do you have a a preference going forward to between doing like serious stuff and doing comedy I think the best way I can describe it is like the way Lionel Richie talks about people build him as like a pop and R&B star, but he doesn't believe in the idea of genre. He writes music. That's the way I'm thinking about it. I'm, I want to do, do the writing, and I want to do it well, and whichever way it takes me, 
Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to walk fully into it and embrace the fear of it. It may not be fantastic, but it'll be something that I was deliberate and intentional about. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's where I am with it. That's cool. Yeah. Cause it's just like, it's more liberating that way. Yeah. And it's also, it's satisfying no matter what direction you go. Like, it's satisfying to write serious stuff. It's satisfying to write funny stuff. They both feel good for different reasons. They're both exercising different muscles. And, you know, th- this has come up a lot, like, recently on the podcast. It was just uh, being open to whatever opportunities are, are there for you. Fuck yeah. Because you can't really predict it. Because you don't know who, who's going to email you out of the blue asking you to do an interview. And then you don't know who you're going to meet when you do that. Exactly, dog. And, you know... You might think I'm hilarious, <laughs> right. but everyone else is like, no, you're, you're great at writing. Like, you know, this is what, this is what the universe wants from you. You know, you know who told me that was my therapist, my marriage counselor, actually. She's like, Russ, I think that you're really focused on the comedy, but I don't think that you're being very, um, I think you're being close to the reality that you're really an activist. Yeah. I mean, there's, you are. Yeah. And I didn't get that because I wasn't like marching, you know what I'm saying? Or I wasn't standing in the street with tear gas canisters being shot at like children that i was standing next to so no, like, just but all the ideas are infused in you yeah 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 it's like ta-nehisi actually did it for me too he wrote between the world and me which exposed him to um um the dude who wrote um black panther right mm-hmm. or the dude who's the director of black panther so they work together on set right like routinely and so this dude who wrote like um who talked about like um was he wrote that piece in atlantic about um what uh the what redlining did like to the to black wealth and he recently testified on congress because of it he can write that and he also wrote black panther and captain america yeah (laughs) right and now he's writing a fictional novel that's on oprah's book club because he just did his work yo Mm -hmm. he just focused like on doing the work and getting better and better and better at doing the work that he'd already been recognized for because he stopped seeking the validation of others Right, I was looking to get validated, like to bring it full circle in this kind of, looking to get validated from an audience of people about how funny I was. Right. When I was consistently producing quality writing, even to your point, like you took that off of the Twitter that you tweet, the tweet this morning. Yeah. And you did it on stage night, of course I did. That's, that's your writing. Mm-hmm. And that's like the heart of what a standard truly is anyway, is a writer. Sure. They take an idea and they give it like a life. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, that, and that to me is much more exciting. Like that, that space, is and even like I was supposed to write this whole time I was away, but I was in sensory overload mode because like you're in a you're in a town with a different language, mm-hmm. a different culture, and a different language. You're 3,600 miles away from your closest family member. Like every color, scent, sound is different to you now. And my, I think like I was feeling my molecules. My my whole body was overloaded. My brain was overloaded. So I, I you know I'm so glad I took my voice recorder like on my I'm my phone and I put my voice recorder out because I would just put put record anywhere I was. I was mm-hmm. like largely around like live music all the time and hearing people's different languages. So now I have that like, like So were you just recorded thoughts that you were having while you were there? I just recorded conversations I was having. Energy, <laughs> and did people know that you were yeah, recording? Yeah, like cuz they were, they knew I was recording the music. <laughs> and so it's like just like I met this guy um from Egypt and we talked about the Egypt, you know, spring. Mm-hmm. And we talked about the revolution and we talked about the different sides of it, like what they wanted to see show American western media. Like the tanks not firing on the people versus what they showed them in Egypt, which is like the tanks running over children. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. Like we're not, you know, we're not always exposed to the truth, which is like 
rooted in who I am and what I was doing since I started, right? So for me, it's like, yeah, you know, this is, there's much more opportunity here. There's much more to experience here. I don't have to craft it. I can, I can recreate it in a, in a, in a different light. I can maybe embellish it a little. Right. It's like what Carlin talks about. Every, every joke needs a embellishment. For sure. It, <laughs> you know what I'm it definitely <laughs> does. And I got like all the pictures I took and all the videos recorded. So I know the experiences that I had. I know the feeling that I've had. And like we were talking about before about how important like meditation is. Mm-hmm. I was doing, the whole time I was there, I was very intentional about doing this um, practice called savoring. So you're inexperienced, you're focused on being present. And while you're enjoying that present experience, you're coloring it and adding a texture to it and a flavor to it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you're and you're distorting the light of it and you're, or you're making it brighter. You know what I'm saying? So you can connect with the memory more so it become emotional and then it will never leave you. Oh, that's interesting. I never heard about trying to think about the colors being different yeah all but just not just like if i know that's just one example but if you you know how like you can give, give a child the same page out of a coloring book or you give it to a classroom and every child has a different interpretation yeah and some kid is always within the lines mm-hmm. and some person only works on the boundary mm-hmm. and some person's out of the line and one person takes one color and just out of the sheer boundless imagination of children decides to work on shading Mm-hmm. that's the same thing we get to do as artists. All of that shit is limitless, dog. So that's just where I am now. Like, I'm, I've Being around people that are so talented and so creative and so joyous is important. And we don't really do a lot of that. And we don't walk into comedy spaces like that. Like, we're still kind of like high school bullies Definitely. in comedy. I'm yeah, funnier it's than certainly you. Not a, it's certainly not a joyous space. And it should be. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's close. You could almost imagine it being joyous, but it's not quite you know something Haywood said to me that I love to this day is he was like we were standing outside like Blue Banana or some silly room that doesn't exist anymore and we were just talking shit just having fun laughing hysterically mm-hmm. he's like yo when we all make it we're gonna miss this shit the most yeah I already miss those days isn't that sad yo I mean I just that's the I think it's the nature of youth you know you just you think back when you're when you're when things are new, it's ex- so exciting because it's brand new. You never experienced it before. And it's just, it's hard to, to recapture that. But if you are, once you start branching out, like you're talking about yeah. and you're meeting these different people, you can't continue it. Then you can, you just experience it on different levels over time. Whereas, you know, if you go through the normal, you start stand up and then you just focus on stand up, and then you're just grinding it out for a long time. Yeah. Then, then you then you do look back on those days. I think, and you like really miss them. I think it's you just have to be very intentional about what you're doing in all spaces you occupy. Like I enjoy every time I talk to you, mm-hmm. even though we disagree about almost everything, right? <laughs> I don't think we disagree about everything. I I I think that our main disagreement is just in our approach to understanding things. That's fair, and yeah. I think that you you kind of push certain ideas just to to change the perspective of other people right like so yeah. you're really pressing on certain things which maybe if you're just then taking those in in a just purely logical based on your, your current perspective they don't seem to quite add up or make sense but yeah so then you get into an argument over it but right. in the course of that argument you you know the perspective does shift because you you the other person does take in 
the new information and does have to really think hard about why they think what they think about their current positions. Yeah. And just through doing that, it changes your position a little bit because you are inevitably just thinking of things you hadn't thought of before and considering things that you hadn't considered before. And it just, it makes you a more well-rounded person. It makes you understand things in a, in a deeper way. So even though I think it can be frustrating to people at times <laughs> and irritating, uh, you know, I, I personally find it fun. I mean, well, both of us love to argue. Yeah. I'm like, let's argue. It's not, and, yeah. and the root of it is like, I think before we were focused on making points. Yeah. And I think now we're just more open-minded to each other even because we were allowed, we gave each other space to grow. And like, for me, the root of it really was, there was always like a foundation of like love and respect for each other because sure. we started together. So it's like, I'm really not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm just interrogating why you believe something that's like a, 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 apparently true. Like, so obviously true. Uh-huh. Right. So it's like, Sean, are you really like this? Are you like the rest of these closed minded idiots? Or do you want to really like focus on like the reality of what you're re- reacting to is cognitive dissonance? You know, the, the, this reactionary feeling of a belief that you've held that's just not true. Right. Let's let's talk about the 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 other shit that's out there. Well, it's sometimes. Well, yeah, because you also you also use language that is not. It's almost like intentionally. It's provocative, right? You're you're intentionally being provocative as opposed to, I think, you think you could come in with a gentler a gentler approach for an audience or for conversations for a conversation. Oh, I just don't respect boundaries, and that's a really that's something that I had yeah. to work on. Like I said, yeah. I definitely work on in therapy. Because I just, you know, and I, I realized that this is a, a manip- manipulation tactic. Uh-huh. Like you try to realize where a line is with somebody and then stretch it as much yes, as possible. Yes, exactly. And I didn't realize that was toxic behavior right. until like I was exposed to that. That's what I was raised. That's what I- See, because I don't, I also don't even realize it's toxic behavior <laughs> on the other end because I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, let's fuck around and, t- you know, and talk about this stuff and like get upset, yeah. about, have an argument because that's, <laughs> that's fun for me. It's fun to have a challenging argument. Um, where I even get a little frustrated. I, you know, I like that. Yeah, but it's like how we, we've both grown so much mm. just as individuals and in our relationship that now we look back on like like who we were. Like when people meet you now, it's like, I'm so glad they met this you and not the how mean you were like two, three years ago, four years yeah, ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Every time people tell me that I'm mean, I'm like, you should have seen me before, man, because oh. I am so nice now right. compared to how mean I used to be. <laughs> it's like, how did you not get punched in the face? I... I think about that. I think about that sometimes. It is amazing that I've never been punched in the face. I've gotten real close to getting punched in the face a lot of times, but it's it's never happened. You just have to get punched in the face. Then you'll learn to shut the fuck up. Probably. <laughs> I'm sure I would. I'm sure I would learn to shut the fuck up if I got punched in the face. Well, that's what the one thing about therapy that I appreciate more than anything, any lesson I've ever learned is the power of listening. Like, I was, I was. This is how bad at listening I was. My therapist was like. You know, Russ, you just have to understand listening is very important. And I was like, well, what is my face supposed to do while I'm listening? And where's my turn to speak? Or what if what they're saying is dumb, right? Uh-huh. And then he's like... That's hilarious that you immediately <laughs> argued against that. <laughs> right, but he's like, think about the last time you've truly felt heard and listened to mm-hmm. and how often that happens. I was like, almost never. And he's like, think about what an amazing gift you would give to someone to listen to them. And that changed my whole worldview, dude. And I was like, whoa. I mean, that's pretty cool. yeah. It just, it just, it allows you. Know you. people are going to listen to you better too once you listen to them. Yeah, because they, they realize that you've created a space where they're um, vulnerable yet mm-hmm. safe. Mm-hmm. 
Like everybody wants to be like at a foundation level wants to be heard. Yeah. And feel validated, right? And like if I approach it before, like the way we argued before is very much judgmental. Like mm-hmm. you were like, dude, this is this is ridiculously false. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, right. Like, and or you would like try to like deconstruct my argument. This is a bad right. argument yeah. to make instead of focusing on like the words that I would say. Like, yeah, because you're <laughs> trying, like overall, you're, the gist of what you're saying is yeah, true, right. but your arguments are wrong. <laughs> and so that's, but that creates the fun. Yeah, that's the tension. Me. Yeah, yeah. Because if your arguments were exactly right, <laughs> Like with foodie, like I don't really argue with foodie, yeah, because His we agree. Well, we agree, and we we come at it from a similar approach. Approach. Yeah. His his is slightly different in that he likes to construct his arguments with like these like flourishes that are like <laughs> literary almost. Yeah, yeah. And he I, does talk I like prose. to try to just say things ex- completely accurately and be speci- very specific and very plain with my language. Whereas he is, uses flowery language because it, it's fun to him. Like it that's, is the, that's the part of the game that he's playing. He gets off on it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he loves that. So, <laughs> um, so that's like the real, the main difference, but our, but for as far as like how we view the world, it's, it's almost exactly the same. Yeah, man. I just, you know, for me, it's like, um, this quote that I love, it's like, he said, I only argue with, with my friends mm-hmm. and loved ones. Right. And people I respect. All others I teach. <laughs> oh, that's a, <laughs> no, that's a real Russ quote right there. It's like, it's not mine. This is a John, I know, John that, Henry Clark. I know, but that's like a really, yeah, uh, your style of thinking. Yeah, because it's just like. That's you, very condescending. It is condescending, but it's also like deeply empowering. To know that you understand something about yourself and what you what you're passionate about learning, and how ignorant people are, and then how proudly ignorant people are, mm-hmm. and that's what brings me back to like the whole white supremacy activism space. You know, violence against women. It's like, come on, we're just we're we're just now unpacking and unlearning centuries of shit that's atrocious. Just now, yeah. And we have the real opportunity to do it, and we're spending our time like, like like laughing and pointing fingers at how ridiculous we think millennials are when millennials are really fucking smart and there are now people that are actively pushing back the other direction yeah there are it's like people just started becoming aware of it and just started trying to fix parts of it yeah and then there's a huge backlash to that (laughs) right where where there and now and that's like what has made it so clear to me yeah like how proudly ignorant they are yeah watching the proud boys like you know just i mean listening to people support trump and like try to make his like nonsense into some reasonable thing it's like wow you really this is really what you guys think this you really want as few latino people here as possible like (sighs) that really is your goal like you want to kick out you'd kick them all out if you could (laughs) I mean, and it's like I never thought that there were people that really felt that way. Or I thought it was like a really small group of people that felt that way. That's really baffling on both ends for me. That one, you thought there was only a small group. And two, people really think, and you thought only a certain people feel this way. Because I'm surrounded by uh, all these, I'm just surrounded by white liberal people, like in the the city. But white liberals are like the true enemies, though. I mean. Because they put up walls like you're talking about, like, oh, I can't believe this exists. Right. And they have the access and privilege. Like yeah, you, you yes, can yes. change this. <laughs> you have the like. If you were to stop arguing with me about what I'm telling you because it makes you feel a certain way, mm-hmm. and just focus on what I'm pointing your attention to, you actually have the power to make this stop happening. You like, feel like people are coming around a little bit. 
I don't give any credence to white people. Maybe that's just me, and I need to do better. I but feel like I feel like white people are getting a little bit better. I feel like white people are still actively murdering, kidnapping. Oh, I mean, I know torturing people, and so better is like. Well, I guess I think white liberal people are are achieving a a more realistic understanding of things. That, okay. That, okay. That they were. That they they just didn't have before, and myself included. Robert uh, Robin D'Angelo wrote this book, um, called Right Fragility, mm-hmm. which I think every oh, yeah. mm-hmm. white person should read. And part of that is like, white supremacy exists because white comfort is, is a precedent in all spaces. Like as soon as you make me uncomfortable, I'm out. And I think it's where like white liberals really need to grow. Yeah, I know this hurts and sucks to hear, and I know that you want me to pat you on the back, but meanwhile. <laughs> This shit out here is still heinous, and you're not. That's where like I'm a I'm I'm not a friendly like person. I don't believe in that whole allyship shit. It's like I'm not gonna pat you on the back for doing what you should do to support humanity. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing that. And same way like um, when I was married, Keely used to always be like, "Yeah, I mean you're so militant, you're so much of an activist, but meanwhile, like you are earning more money at a job that you just started like nine, twelve months ago." I've been in this job for a decade and I've reached this ceiling. People don't give me spaces. Like they won't let me occupy spaces mm-hmm. because I have a number of children. Uh, opportunities are not open to me that are open to you immediately. Right. People don't talk over you in meetings. Right. People don't um, massage your shoulders. You've never been open minded to that space until you had kids. Then you only started to do the work. Right. That's. That's you know that hurts me to hear, dog. You know from, you know a person I love and admire and respect. And Especially when you're coming from a righteous place. Yeah, you're like, but I'm righteous, right? But that's like what every like true, um, like leader and activist had was a truly revolutionary wife, like a Coretta. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like a Betty. You know what I mean? Like people that are in the in their corner, like, listen here, motherfucker. Like, <laughs> well, I'm hold down the fort at home. Understand everything at once. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like you can't you can't have all perspectives at the same time. Like you spend so much time learning certain things, you have blind spots. Everyone has blind spots, right? You can't you can't know everything. You can't but know everybody's experience. But you affirm the blind spot. It's just like when you right, right, right. when you um drive a car for the first time, like you bought a new car and you'd never seen it on the streets anymore or before, but then you see that car everywhere once you're in it. Uh-huh. It's the same thing. You just weren't you didn't put any attention to it. Right. The law of attraction speaks on that. You know what I'm saying? For me it's like um, when I was um, in Cabo Verde, like you see women carrying like coolers full of sh- shit on their head, like an entire like market kiosk space in a bag on top of their head. And then you see men carrying it in their, <laughs> in their hands, and it's like they've been around this for centuries, and they're and obviously the women are doing it the better way. <laughs> you know right. what I'm saying like it's not they're not they don't need sh- they don't have shoulders they have to be adaptive to it, and we need to be equally as adaptive. We need to realize that these we've been exposed to these things we've been closed minded. And it's much more powerful when we are intentional about supporting the people that are like the backbone of our communities. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. and for me, that's just like what it what it all truly is about. Like, being more open minded, being very like intentional, and being very like present and aware. And then you you'll start to see the shit more. Mm-hmm. That's just that's like overall like we're yeah. That's yeah for sure. I don't know, man. Well, dude, I mean, uh, I think you're in a good place. Think, <laughs> I think you made a lot of progress. Fuck yeah, you too, man. 
I think we've both made a lot of progress. <laughs> I think we're getting, uh, you know, closer to the ideal form. Yeah, watch two men congratulate each other. Yeah, Glad and each other. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> nah, man, we're both doing great. I don't. No, we have good it's lives. True. We're yeah. very fortunate. Yeah, things are working out. Yeah, we're doing our best. We're continuing to do our best. Thanks for being here, man. Fuck yeah, anytime. For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com.